0: and uh, we'll we'll dig in. Gracious Lord, we do give you thanks for the rain which waters the earth and for the signs of the changing seasons which are themselves reminders of your faithfulness to us that season by season, month by month, year by year, you continue to provide for us faithfully, Lord, and we pray that you would water us and nourish us with your grace as we study your word this morning. Give us a a deeper understanding of the book of Acts and especially how your work in and through the apostle Paul, the man known as Saul, um, how that is a, a beautiful um, example and sign of your grace, not only toward him, but toward us as well. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, Stan and Carla. Good to have you guys as well. Um, let's let's get into Acts chapter 9. And uh, today we're going to try to get through the first half of the chapter. We'll see, see how that goes. Um, but let me uh, open us by reading the first paragraph, verses 1 through 9. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. All right, so the beginning of the story here, and uh, famous story that it is, um, it's interesting, it's one of those stories that people have uh, just a general... Um, sense of and and sometimes that can even um, kind of cr- change some of the details of it you know as it um, one of the things that people often talk about with this is the time that Paul got knocked off his donkey or off his horse on the way to Damascus well it says nothing about a donkey or a horse presumably he was on some kind of animal but we don't know that <laughs> for sure so it's interesting how our memories can uh, misremember some of those details about the story but to begin with and I'll, I'll pull up uh, our handout for us here Um, number two on on the handout, public enemy number one persists in persecuting the way. Public enemy number one. So that would be Saul. He's public enemy number one. As we recall, this is a guy who already has this notorious reputation among the Christians, among the disciples, going back to at the beginning of chapter eight, when Luke had first introduced him, that Saul was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And here we're told at the beginning of chapter 9, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, We're given the impression that Saul is the one who's, um, if he's not administering this persecution, he definitely seems to have some hand, some role in leading and directing those efforts. He's breathing threats and murder. We get the sense that here this guy is just totally overcome and obsessed with wanting to take down these people who are called the way. More on that in a second. But we, as you read the letters of the New Testament, you see how much this influence, this whole, this background continued to impact the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the Galatians. He, he said to them, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Of course, at the time, he wouldn't have called it the church of God, right? He didn't regard it as being of God at all, but instead of being this, this um, uh, terrible aberration from the truth as he had come to, to know it. But in retrospect, he realizes I was persecuting the church of God violently. But um, as I mentioned, they are not called here the church of God in Acts chapter 9. They're referred to as the way, the way. And this is really an interesting kind of thing, and it comes up multiple times in Acts. It shows up um, throughout the book of Acts, especially in the later chapters. Um, Where does it come from? What is the the reason for this? I think at the most basic level, it refers back to and and harkens back to Jesus' statement about himself, John 14. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now those who are followers of Jesus are followers of the way and they are on the way to eternal life. They are, uh, it is a way of life that they are in and they're not just part of you know some nonprofit organization. <laughs> they are part of a way of life. But I wonder, do any of you have any other uh, thoughts or reflections, things that when with this reference to the way other ways that you understand this, what, what that might mean or the significance of that statement. And I'll just remind you again, um, you can type in the chat, in uh, the chat bar feature, um, or just uh, feel free to, to speak up. Be sure to unmute yourself before you do. What is it about the way? And what to you is the significance of the early Christians being known as the way? I should mention also that uh, more recently there have been cults that have called themselves The Way. Um, So (laughs) just because someone uh, calls themselves, uh, oh yeah, Chip says it sounds like a new age cult. Right, and it has been uh, a a cult. Uh, I knew uh, a woman in Washington State who told me the story of having escaped basically from um, this cult and uh, it was a a pretty harrowing thing. Um, The Emery's ask, is this the era of the fish sign or the ichthus sign? That's a good question. I think that that was later. Um, I, I don't know that for sure. And you guys are probably familiar with the, the origins of that, but just in case you're not. So there's a couple of things. I'll put it in the chat. Ichthus, um, the is the Greek word for fish. Okay, and that came and became an acronym for um, or a shorthand for the message of Christianity, and it was Jesus Christos Huios uh, Theos, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Yeah. So the um, C H is the Christ, the T H is the is God Theos, and then the the U um, is son, Jesus Christ, son of God. Um, and so uh, in order to kind of indicate as a, a covert and under, or undercover way for Christians to indicate to one another that they, that they were part of the way, they would make part of the sign of the fish. And you know, you guys know the ubiquitous um, fish symbol. They would make half of it kind of like a um, half circle. The other person would make the other half forming a fish indicating it. Anyway, I digress. But an answer to your question. No, I, I'm not sure if it was yet or not. Other uh, comments or thoughts about the church being the way, and did you, you have something or are you? Yeah. Um, I'll unmute you. Go ahead. It's not letting me unmute you, Ann. I'm sorry. You got to unmute yourself. This is a true mother right here doing the hair, doing Bible study the same time. Okay. Go ahead, my dear.
1: Um, well, so of course Jesus says He is the way. Right. Did you say that already?
0: Um, I did, but yes, that's right.
1: Okay. So, but then also, um, and this is and this is not even biblical, but um, so Taoism means Tao means way. Yeah, that's right. And um, so it's I don't, kind of a it's kind of a, a natural way to describe, um a path of life. Yeah. Something not that I'm, I'm not espousing Taoism, of course, but, um, it's, it's an easy kind of human way to understand, um, going in a certain direction.
0: Yeah. A way, it's a way, a way of life.
1: Orientation.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, Taoism and the Tao, um, And it's usually spelled, you know, Um, T-A-O. C.S. Lewis picked up on that in uh, his book, The Abolition of Man, and talked talked about the Tao in terms of kind of natural law. Um, So the Tao can't express the gospel, but he uses that as kind of shorthand for natural law, the law that's written on every man's heart. And he demonstrates in that book, just a short little book, how across time and space and culture and religion, there's these fundamental elements of the law that are written on people's heart. You know, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. In that book, he says nobody in any culture ever has been commended for being a coward, for example. These are elements of the Tao or the natural law that are just there for everyone. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Thank you, Ian. All right, well, let's let's continue on then. Um, so there's, uh, Saul's out there, he's he's persecuting them. Then verse three, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And in my translation, obviously, it has Lord. Perhaps um, if you're using a different one, it might say sir. Um, the Greek word here is kyrgios. It's the word for Lord that's used throughout the New Testament. But this would be a good example of, of irony or dramatic irony in it, kind of its its most basic meaning, which is uh, we know as the readers more than Saul does in that moment. So when he refers to Jesus as Lord here, I think he's doing it in the sense of who are you, sir? You know, Who are you? Oh, great voice speaking to me. He doesn't mean it as a confession of faith, not yet. Um, and yet him saying that it's He's saying more than he realizes, basically. That's kind of the the essence of irony there. He's saying more than he even knows. Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, well, yeah, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Um, Which is, on the face of it, a strange statement. He's not persecuting Jesus, per se. He's persecuting Stephen. He's persecuting followers of the way. He's not persecuting Jesus himself, who at this point is... Resurrected, risen, and ascended at the right hand of God, um, in what sense then could we say that he is persecuting Jesus, Jesus, you are persecuting me. In what sense could we say that? If um, you look at the the handout here, um, this I think is where we get kind of the origins of Paul's later teaching of the church being the body of Christ. So number 3 on on the handout here the church is the body of Christ. Which is to say Jesus saying that to Saul causes him to recognize and realize that there is a a fundamental connection between between Christians between believers and with their lord. Okay? And he develops this in several of his letters just to give you a couple of examples in Ephesians 1 it says he that is God put all things under his that is Jesus's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all so the bo- church is the body of the Christ uh, is the body of Christ Christ is the head of the body we retain that organic connection to the Lord 1 Corinthians 12, maybe um, it's the most fully developed of this teaching. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So when we talk about somebody becomes a member of the church, this is where that language is coming from. It's like saying you're becoming a limb, right? You're becoming a, a limb, a member of this, uh, this uh, local instance of the body of Christ. We belong to him. So thoughts or reflections on that and what it means for the, the church to be the body of Christ?
2: I'm, I'm struck with the fact that um, this... Uh this nomenclature, the way that the believers had decided this is what we will now call ourselves because it's so uh, refreshingly different than the synagogue and the Jewish worship can be looked at so differently by Paul who sees it as something to be uh, done away with. And so two different entities looking at the same thing and seeing a, a different story. And and Jesus just has to intervene.
0: Yeah, right. Jesus, and and wonder why why at this point, why now, why why in this way, we can't know for sure. Um, But that's right. He's going to step in. And it's interesting, Saul will later say and and make very clear as Paul, um, that he is still worshiping the God of their fathers. So he is worshiping what he'll say, I think in chapter 18 or 19 is, you know, we are worshiping the God of Israel, in the way of Jesus, according to the way of Jesus Christ. So it's not that now they're worshiping a new God. It's that they are worshiping the God of the fathers, but in and through Jesus. Now, as they've come to understand him, as Jesus says over and over again, when you've seen me, you have seen the father. In fact, he says that in that that same section in John 14, where he says, I am the way. If you've seen him, you've seen the father. We worship the God of Israel through his son, uh, our Lord Jesus. So now we are part of that body of Christ as members of the way. We belong to him so that Jesus says to Saul, if you're persecuting my people, you are persecuting me. They are one and the same. Right. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Hans. Press on. There you go. Oh, yeah, yeah you're
3: good. Yeah, the, uh, you know, Paul did not recognize jesus as being alive at this point
0: that's a good point yeah
3: and to you know say well how could he possibly be persecuting someone who's not alive right right
0: so yeah that's true and it doesn't make it apparent in this passage but he will say it later and make it very clear he sees the form of the risen Jesus. So it's not just that he hears the voice, but he, he sees the form of the resurrected Jesus so that now it's unmistakable to him. This is also why he's able to become, as he'll say in 1 Corinthians 15, an apostle untimely born. Because you remember, part of the, um, uh, the uh, criteria for becoming an apostle was to having seen the resurrected Christ and it's like, okay, well, I guess you now you got you did, although it's in a different different kind of way. so good thank you, Hans. yeah, And you had your hand up.
1: So did he think that it was maybe a ghost at first? do we know?:
0: Um, that's a good question. There's no indication that he thought that, um and he doesn't say that at any other um later as you know in chapter twenty two and twenty six he'll recount this. And um, he never says that he thought it was a ghost. There was something unmistakably vivid about about the vision that straight away he recognizes that this is the genuine article. And uh, probably part of that was the fact that it was corroborated by the people who were with him, right? Like, am I am I seeing things here? And they're like, no, we were there too. So um, I think that might have been part of it as well. You yeah, put them. Go put ahead. Them on a mind.
2: three-day fast. Okay.
1: In my. Study Bible, it says in the rabbinic tradition, such a voice from heaven <clears throat> would have been understood as the voice of God himself.
0: Right, right. And so I think, you know, uh, maybe Saul's kind of hedging his bets a little bit when he says, who are you, Lord? Like, <laughs> maybe this is the, the Lord, the true God. Um, but uh, they even had a, a technical name for it. They called it the bot call which meant the um, the voice, was it the daughter of the voice or something like that? And the idea was they felt like they were past the the period or the age of the prophets so that they were no longer hearing the voice. But what they might hear is an echo of God's voice. That's the daughter or the echo of the voice of God. So here he's somehow getting that bot coal, that echo of God's voice, which had been silenced for hundreds of years, right? Since the time <coughs> of the prophets, or at least so they... So they believed, but now he's he's hearing it once again. Good. Okay, so Saul has this moment. Maybe he's knocked off a donkey. doesn't tell us that. (laughs) But then it says, verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They don't get the vision. They just hear hear the voice. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. I think we ought to understand that, that, that Luke is also saying more there, that this is kind of indicative of what Saul, um, Saul was really doing. His eyes had been open, but he wasn't seeing anything, right? Even though he had the physical sight before, he did not have the spiritual sight in order to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and his followers as the, the true heirs to um, the promises of the, the, of the God of Israel. And I think this continues to be the case. And Paul will pick up this theme later in his letters, that there are people that unbelievers are blinded by Satan, even though they can see physically, cannot see spiritually. Okay, so his eyes were open, but he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Just imagine the scene, right? And for three days, he was without sight. Note that well, three days, and neither ate nor drank. I think it's kind of suggesting that Saul has to go through his own personal death here. He has to go through his own three days in the tomb, so to speak, um, so that he is going to be able to be reborn. So to go back to your handout here, uh, number four on the handout, Saul experiences the essence of conversion. And what is the essence of conversion? Well, Jesus told us, told it to us in Matthew chapter 18 you remember this, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To become converted, to be brought to faith, is to become like a little child which is to say to move from a place of um, self-sufficiency and self-dependence, self-reliance, to a, a place of Christ-sufficiency and Christ, dependence on Christ. See, now he's being led by the hand like a little child. That's what has to happen for one to be brought into the kingdom of heaven. You have to be able to, to be humbled and brought to that place. And I love this quote from Will Williman, who says, "We progress by regression and go forward by falling backward." It's basically what we have with with Saul here. Yeah, Anne. I see your hand. Go ahead. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, I thought what you where you're going with that is that the that there was he had to die to himself. Yes. And um, and so. Um, you know, the, with the three days in the tomb yeah. sort of an idea. And so the, the, that being in my head, plus um, this passage from Matthew 18 um, kind of makes me think maybe this is a passage um, in favor of infant baptism.
0: Interesting. Say more about that.
1: So, you know, the, the baptism is also seen as a death yep. of the old Adam, the death you know to self and um it, it's a it's a turning and it's a you know so the essence of convert conversion is this death of your um self sufficient self yes um your strivingness yeah and so you know and, and that is and that is like a child so um no that i think that's a, a <laughs> i'm not i'm not quite putting together for it, there was like a kernel and then I didn't, yeah
0: like, no i think i mean i think I, I see where you're going yeah so maybe one other dot to bring in there is um jesus's conversation with nicodemus right in john chapter 3 yeah
1: yeah, yeah.
0: that's what. that's why. <laughs> so if to be born again um at you know in nicodemus do i so what i need to Go back into my mother's womb. This doesn't make any sense. But Jesus is saying there, in a a sense, the same thing they're saying in Matthew 18 and the same thing that Saul experiences here, which is you need to be born again. You need to become like a little child. Okay, how do you become like a little child? Well, you, you get born again, right? And you, and you die to be born again. First, you need to die to yourself. You need to die to your plans and your purposes. You need to die. I mean, Paul really sets this out in Philippians chapter three, when he talks about all the things that he had going for him. I was born on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, I was a, a, a zeal as it came to persecution. Um, I was zealous. And uh, he had to die to all that. And be reborn, as we'll see, he is here shortly through the waters of baptism. So, no, I very good, and I think that's a, I think that's spot on. So, this is what Saul is going through here. He's, he gets totally humiliated, but you know, the humiliated is the the root of humility, or vice versa, um, and uh, that's that's kind of what happens here. Okay, let's go on to the next paragraph. Then, starting with verse ten. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus, and Damascus, I mean, Damascus is an ancient, ancient city. It's been a significant city for thousands of years. By the time of Christ, it already had a history going back more than a thousand years. So, and still today, you know, it's a significant place in Syria. And I'm told that you can go to this this street called Straight still today, that it's still a main thoroughfare through Damascus. I can't verify that personally, but so I've been told. Maybe it's on Google Earth. You could check that out probably. Anyway, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Just like Samuel and Isaiah, right? All the prophets of old. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called straight. The Grotta House. it's called uh, <laughs> in German. And at the house of, of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. All right, so poor Ananias, goodness gracious, to be put in that position now while he was sitting by a window praying, then next thing he knows, he gets this word from the Lord, you are gonna go to Saul, and Saul, public enemy number one. This is crazy, Lord, how, how could I possibly do this? You know, have you heard? Do you know who this, this guy is? Um, are you sure about that, Lord? But here, number five on your handout, God confounds the world and makes Saul his chosen vessel. It's so indicative and emblematic of the way that God works, which is Paul himself will go back to this message again and again and again in his letters, most especially in 1 Corinthians, uh, where he says at the, the beginning of in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, He says, consider your calling, brothers, which is to say, consider how you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's nothing in yourself that can lay claim to it, but it comes solely from God. And an interesting verbal connection here too. um, It said in verse uh, 15, the Lord says to Ananias, he, Saul, is a chosen instrument, The Greek word skios there is vessel, okay? He's an instrument or vessel. It's the same word that Paul uses later in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can imagine he has in mind there not only Genesis 1, but also his own uh, experience of conversion, right? That revelation he got of the Lord. But he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, or sometimes it's translated earthen vessels, the same word that is used in in, um, Acts 9, okay? We have this treasure in our earthen vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Saul is that chosen earthen vessel, that chosen jar of clay that God is going to use in order that it might be clear to the world it's not about Saul and his virtues, Okay, this is the guy who was persecuting me, but now I am making him to be my chosen vessel to bring that message to the world. It's a powerful moment, and uh, you can't uh, fault Ananias if he's a little bit taken aback by it. But comments or reflections on that and just the, the backward, upside-down way that God is working here in, uh, in calling Saul. Yeah, Anne. You gotta unmute yourself, sweetie. I know. Sorry. Okay, I thought I did.
1: Sorry. (laughs) I I know you're supposed to. I was holding down the space bar. Um. (laughs) On chapter on on verse 14, uh, Ananias says he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, and then, and so the repetition in verse 16 of. I'll show him how much he must suffer for, for the sake of my name. Um, that word bind in verse 14, is that like, um, I'm assuming that has connotations of making people suffer. Yeah, I sake.
0: think it especially has the connotation of being imprisoned. Yeah. So, um, he'll talk, he'll use that and talk about uh, like in Philippians, when he's writing from, from prison, you know, I'm, I'm in chains, I'm bound. And mm-hmm. so that binding, I think, is, is referencing, like, handcuffs, basically.
1: Right? Yeah. So so God's kind of turning the tables, like, yeah, I'm going to put him in jail for the sake of my name.
0: Uh, yeah, and this is and, the way that he's going to speak, right? He, that he becomes right. a bondservant.
1: So, yeah, even having the authority to be, to suffer for his name, yes. so to speak. Yep. yep. So and, going from the author- so-called authority to cause people to suffer or imprison people to suffer or imprison people to having the authority to be imprisoned. Yes. Yeah. For the sake of the name.
0: That's right. That's well put. And uh, again, in Philippians chapter one, he'll say, um, he, he has this remarkable turn of phrase where he says, it's been graciously given to us, graciously given to us not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but to suffer for him. It's a gracious gift, he says, that he is able to suffer for the Lord. And we've seen that with the apostles earlier in chapter 4 or 5, when uh, they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. So, yeah, it's a total uh, surprising turn that it, it takes there. Other reflections on uh, our questions about Ananias here and just the, the remarkable mission that he has given. Here, Ananias, you know, the Lord doesn't call on one of the apostles to do this even. Ananias, so far as we can tell, is just an ordinary old disciple here in Damascus. Um, and now, Ananias, you have this high and holy mission. It's a, a really a, a neat neat thing to see.
2: Back to uh, Paul for just a minute, or Saul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, isn't it an interesting uh, uh, contrast that his point of pride is indeed this uh, imprisonment or this suffering. Um, you were speaking about humility a few moments ago, uh, and yet those passages that you share uh, point out just how humbling it is to belong to Christ. You know, I mean, he could have he could have said, "Wow, well, you didn't have a conversion experience like I've had." <laughs> you know, uh, it, he doesn't do that. He says, "We we hold these." Uh, these truths we hold this this treasure in jars of clay i mean we're 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 cracked pots yep yep, yep. at best at best <laughs> I mean, it's almost like what, what what further proof do you need that christianity is real who would go through this right for this vainglory of 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 trouble and right pain and punishment and persecution and I'm making Christianity sound awful. It's not. (laughs) No,
0: (laughs) but I mean, no, that's the point is well taken. I mean, it's uh, uh, the fact that he was, he, he was in the driver's seat, right? I mean, he he was a guy who, um, you know, had all of those bona fides in terms of the, his Judaism. And he's, you know, persecuting this, this small minority. And yet he's suddenly gives it all up. And it's not because of anything in himself, but it's because of this. This revelation that has come to him that has totally that totally changes everything, changes everything. Nothing short of a miracle could do that, and that continues to be the case for people, especially for for adults to come to faith. It has to be a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's so hard for someone to because you're you're implicitly, if not explicitly, renouncing um, uh, your life from before and saying. Now this is, uh, this is who I am. All right. I want to uh, continue on this because this next verse is just in the small way. So, so beautiful here when it says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, laying his hands on him. Okay. Saul is the one who had been laying hands on everybody, but now Ananias is laying hands on him. And he says to him, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it must have been with fear and trembling that Ananias does this, right? Um, But here in the, the essence of grace, in so many ways, an enemy becomes a brother. He says, brother Saul. Just think of that moment for Ananias. Brother Saul, really? This is how he's going to refer to him, but he, how can he but do that? And this is, this is what Christianity is. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ, be part of the church. And Paul will pass this on in his short letter to Philemon. He's writing to his friend Philemon to receive back this um, slave that had run away, Onesimus. And uh, Paul wrote to Philemon. He said, perhaps this is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever no longer as a bond servant but more than a bond servant as a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the lord that now in in christ we have this bond as fellow bond servants but even more than that as beloved brothers and uh I couldn't pass by quoting maybe one of the most beautiful expressions from Paul of his conversion in his first letter to Timothy. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Such a powerful passage where Paul lays out, look, he chose me precisely because I was the bottom barrel, right? I was the chief of sinners, and chief of sinners though I be, that uh, Jesus shed His blood for me and called me to be uh, uh, this minister, this chosen vessel of His grace. And I love that last part where it says, "I received mercy for this reason that in me Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe." And I, in my mind's eye, I picture when I was a kid, we would go to the um, the car show, the the North American International Auto Show in Detroit, right? The great big car show. And the the favorite thing to see would always be the concept cars. You know, they put those cars up on uh, the great big revolving thing, you know, like a giant Lazy Susan, and and the car would be revolving around. They'd put it on display. And that's what I kind of picture in my mind. It's silly, I know, but I, I picture here's Saul made Paul up on display revolving around and what, what do we see in him? We see the perfect patience of our Lord Jesus, who is infinitely patient with you and me. If, if he can take somebody like Saul, how much more can he take y- you and me? And that as much as we, as we sin, as we fall back into those same um, issues and problems, still we have a Lord who is faithful and patient toward you and me. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful image, and I, I never tire of uh, hearing that passage. And, meditating upon this call of, of Saul. So, other thoughts on, on Saul becoming a beloved brother, Ananias, setting hands on him. Yeah, go ahead, Hans.
3: Um Paul, or Saul had uh, waited three days. Yes. Uh, when do you think Ananias was uh, uh, told to do it? Was it, do you think he, was part of that three-day wait period. so like, oh, what am I going to say to this guy? Right, like, right. Yeah, right. I mean,
0: <laughs> he's just, now he's just waiting to, uh, okay, this guy's going to come. What am I going to do? You know, do I get some tea ready? Like, what, what? just, it must have just been an agonizing time. And you mentioned, you know, what's his message going to be? And here we don't get the full thing. And um, we hear more of it later in chapter 22 and 26 more of what Ananias says to him, but yeah, it must've been excruciating for Ananias to think through, well, what am I going to say? What am I going to, what am I going to do when this guy shows up? Yeah. Anne.
1: I think that three days must've been grace also for Ananias where if Paul was laid up, then of course, Ananias would be taking care of him. Yeah. And through that probably growing in uh, sympathy or empathy toward him sure where so at at first you know he is the icon of everything that the christians would fear or maybe even hate yeah um but now he's starting to see him as one of a child of god
0: yeah as a brother as a brother in the lord Mm -hmm. and so uh, i want to um leave us with just these last, last verse and a half, verse 18 and 19. Uh, and immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Okay. So um, this, and this can definitely be, be taken too far, but um, in a sense, Saul embodies the process of conversion here, just in this, this verse. And uh, just to set out what I mean by that. So um, there's a, a kind of pattern that accompanies conversion. The first thing is to hear, to hear the word of God, to hear the good news of, of who Christ is, what he has done for us. So Saul hears that message from Jesus himself. Then he hears um, uh, from Jesus through Ananias. And so Paul, will write later to the Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We quoted last week from Romans 10. Faith comes through hearing. Okay, So there's that first part of it. It's the hearing. Secondly, as we saw here, his eyes were opened. Okay, So there's that opening. In Saul's case, literally, his eyes are open. He's able to regain his sight. Um, but spiritually now, He's able to see and get the same, uh, same thing happening in that famous story in John nine of the man who'd been born blind. Jesus heals him and that the man gets uh, put through the ringer by the religious leaders, you know, go ahead and tell us this Jesus, he's a sinner, blah, blah, blah. But he answers and says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see words, of course, immortalized in our hymn, amazing grace. Once was blind, but now I see. Our eyes become opened. That's a a, a way to depict what it means to come to faith. Then the third step of this conversion, it's incomplete. It's that washing, right? So he rose and was baptized. And he'll write to Titus. He, God, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration, the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Those things go hand in hand. And uh, for, for Saul, right away, boom, his eyes are open, he's baptized. But then fourth and finally, isn't this interesting? Um, here, I don't think that, that Saul necessarily received the Lord's Supper right away. It says he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. But I think spiritually, we can look at that as um, coming to the Lord's table and receiving the Lord's Supper. And we see this in, earlier in Acts. Acts. Those who received his word were baptized, okay, they were washed, and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So that kind of fourfold process, in a sense, um, embodies or encapsulates, uh, you know, that process of conversion, of having the hearing, having the eyes open, being washed in holy baptism, and receiving the Lord's Supper. Um, It's not always going to look that way, but I I find it interesting how that kind of plays out there. There's also been, um, you know, Saul's conversion gets used paradigmatically um, or as the exemplar for here's what other conversions look like. And I think sometimes they do look like, but I think that's misused when it says they should or they must look like that. Like not everybody is going to get knocked off their horse. Maybe Saul wasn't even knocked off his horse. Um, But uh, for some people, they experience this. But for many people, it's a much more gradual sort of thing, right? C.S. Lewis uh, attested to this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. It wasn't just a a one-time thing. It was a gradual, um, enlightening. And he even became just a generic theist before he became a Christian. It was was a, a process. So we can't legislate or say this is how it always has to be. Uh, Oh, let me give you one one last thought from uh, verses 19 through 22. So then it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and then immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? Like, wait a second. This is not what we thought he was going to be doing here. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, just the way that their minds must have been spinning right here. It's hard, hard to imagine. But um, it's just a last thought on this. Uh, it says in verse 22 that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. And the Greek word there is simbimbadzo. It's a fun one to say, simbimbadzo, which means literally to piece together. So he was proving to them that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, by piecing together. What was he piecing together? Well, you think of him as like a lawyer who's piecing together different bits of evidence. And for him, especially as he's speaking to the Jews, no doubt he's piecing together evidence from the Old Testament scriptures, right? He's piecing together those promises and prophecies and now comparing them, bring them to light with the things that had happened among them, um, the events that they had experienced in their own day of Jesus' coming, his ministry, his suffering, and most of all, his resurrection. So as Jesus himself told the disciples, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he, what? Opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So that this is kind of the the essence of that conversion of that, boom, the light bulb goes on, right? And now his eyes are open, our minds are open to recognize, to piece together, oh, Jesus truly is the Son of God. He, He must be. Everything else now makes sense in light of him and his resurrection. So it's fascinating to see this trajectory and this transformation of Saul just in a short time, the work that, that God did in him. And uh, we'll, we'll continue walking through that next week with the latter half of chapter nine, as we see straight away the persecutor becomes the persecuted. But any uh, last thoughts or questions, reflections from, uh, from this chapter? Yeah, go ahead, Hans.
3: I have two. Uh, one if Saul had been riding a horse, why did they lead him by the hand back to it? Why did they stand back to his horse?
0: That's a great point.
3: Yeah. And go ahead. And the second one is, what type of baptism do you think he received at that point? Was it still the type of baptism of John no. or uh, repentance? Right. Or was or it the, the what genuine consider modern baptism? baptism? Right, uh, I believe it. Yeah, he, I
0: think he's getting the genuine article here. I think he's getting uh, baptism um, into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And part of the reason I believe that is what um, he says later, and he confesses that baptism as having been um, for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, um, where is this? Acts twenty two sixteen. He, this is Saul recounting what he hears from Ananias, what happens. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And the fact too, Ananias said that calling on his name suggests, you know, baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, good, good question. I think he gets the real deal right here and uh, makes all the difference. Any other questions or, or comments? Okay, well, we'll continue with Saul next week and see how God continues to um, be at work in him and the transformation that he brings. Oh, go ahead, Carla. You got to un- unmute yourself there. Make it so difficult. There you go. You're good. Yeah, am I on? Yes, you're good
2: we just got a phone call that Brendan and Anna's son Ruben arrived this morning
1: hey hallelujah congratulations his
2: name is Ruben Andrew he was 8 pounds 12 ounces and 22 and a quarter inches long so a chunk of baby so I just wanted to share that with you
0: oh thank you that's great news a new great grandson for yeah yeah so Look forward to uh, the little Reuben being baptized and washing away his sins. So thank you for sharing that with us. All right, guys. Well, God bless you. Thank you for joining us once again, and we will see you very soon. Take care.
3: Have a good day. Bye. Bye. <laughs>